thank you all for coming this evening uh, to the first seminar um, of the ESRC um, project on ways of knowing after atrocity, where, we're, where we've been examining some of the methods that are used to uh, design, implement and assess transitional justice processes set up in response to serious human rights violations. And uh, we're, really, we're really pleased to have Nancy Combs here. It's also the, the last seminar of the OTJR seminar series for this, no, second last um, seminar for the OTJR seminar series. So we've got, we've got, a, lot, um, we've got a lot coming up. And as you'll see, we've circulated the, the seminar program for next term. So for those of you who haven't come to these seminars before, there's, there's a lot of opportunity to, to get involved. So with that in mind, I suppose we should start with a brief thank you to, to the Economic and Social Research Council and the Planethood Foundation who support these events. Um, and, and I hope that you'll find these, these discussions engaging. Um, we'll also have the, the program and the, the talk podcast um, with, with commentary on that. We have some partners based in Switzerland and Belgium who will also be involved in these discussions. So we, we really are trying to build this discussion so it happens both, both in person and, and online. Um, but luckily we have Nancy in person which is fantastic and it's a, it's a real privilege for me to be able to introduce her to all of you this evening. Um, as I said uh, at the lunchtime discussion this afternoon, Nancy, Nancy wears a number of hats. She's both the, the Vice Dean and a Professor of Law at the William and Mary Law School in the United States. Um, but she's also the director of the Human Security Law Center, and she manages also to fit in doing some, some really groundbreaking scholarship. So she wrote um, her, her first um, monograph, it's entitled Guilty Pleas in International Criminal Law, Constructing a Restorative Justice Approach, which is published with Stanford in 2007. And then um, her next monograph, Fact Finding Without Facts, the Uncertainty Evidentiary Foundations of International Criminal Convictions was published with CUP um, in 2010, and it's really it's really that book that's going to form the basis of these discussions, and it was what prompted us to invite her to come and participate in this seminar series. But in addition to this, Nancy's written numerous other academic articles and has also been a legal advisor to the Iran-United States Claims Tribunal. So, um, so as with a number of scholars in this area, she, she moves between the practitioner and the scholarship realm. So we're interested in seeing that, and you can certainly see that in, in your scholarship as well, so that's, um, that's obviously of, of interest. So, so with, that's more or less enough from me, so, but thank you all for, for coming this evening, particularly given that it is the nicest day in Oxford that we've had for months, so, so I really appreciate that. Um, but let me hand over to Nancy. Thank you so much for, um, I'm moving over here because I'm gonna be dealing with the PowerPoints, but thank you so much for having me. Um, it is actually of note, you mentioned that I was at the Iran Tribunal, and I was, I feel like I might be the only scholar in international criminal justice who has not worked at one of the international criminal tribunals. Um, because, I mean, it is so common to work at a tribunal and then go into some sort of academic position that I feel like I don't have the street cred. On the other hand, I think I might be willing to be a little more critical than people who have still friends and family members at the international <laughs> tribunal. So um, it is something of an incestuous, um, but 
but well-meaning group. Um, anyway, so yeah, I'm here to talk about fact-finding in international criminal law. Um, so I set out what I wanted to talk about. I've I've thought about this quite a bit. I've done a fair, basically just done a lot of reading of transcripts. I mean, that's that's what went into this study was read a bunch of transcripts and then read a bunch of judgments. Um, and as you know, those are those tend to be lengthy, so it just took me a lot of time to do. But what I wanted to talk about is what I ascertained in reading these transcripts was that the tribunals have a fair amount of difficulty receiving clear, coherent testimony from international witnesses about the events that form the basis for the indictments. So what I say is that they have a lot, there are a lot of fact-finding impediments to these tribunals. So I want to talk about what are the fact-finding impediments, what are the causes or potential causes of them, how do the trial chambers react to the fact-finding impediments, why do they react that way, and what should we think about all of this? And depending on, I want to keep my eye on the time. Um, Nikki has told me I should talk for about 45 minutes or so, so we'll see how far we get. But I want to make sure to leave enough um, time for questions. Okay, so what, you know, what, what are the fact-finding impediments? As I said, the international criminal tribunals are beset by a variety of fact-finding impediments that make it fairly difficult for the tribunals to figure out who did what to whom. So what are they? There are sort of two main difficulties. Witnesses tend to have difficulty answering some of the factual questions that counsel put to them. That's one kind of difficulty. The second kind of difficulty is there's often a difficulty in understanding the questions that are asked, just basically understanding them, and then in providing answers that seem relevant to what the um, counsel is asking them. So if we look at our first category, just difficulty providing information about what? Well, about dates is one example. International witnesses often have difficulty dating the events that they witness. Sometimes they're able to say, well, it occurred during the rainy season or it occurred during the dry season, so be able to isolate you know, a couple of month period, but sometimes they're not even able to say that. Um, why does it matter? Well, dates are key to fact-finding in, in a couple of senses. One, if they, the inability to provide dates can conceal inconsistencies between different witnesses' testimonies. So if you are able to provide a date and the witness who comes after you provides a different date, then the trial chamber knows it has a problem, right? Or if the defense witnesses provide a different date. Also, dates permit the defendants to present alibi evidence. So it is far more powerful to say, if you're a defendant, you want to be able to say, I did not give a speech calling for the extermination of the Tutsi on 12 February 1994 at this location, because I was across the country in Kigali at a government minister's meeting on 12 February 1994. But that defense that you were across the country in Kigali is going to be meaningless if the witness was not able to date your the rally at which you allegedly spoke. If all they say is it happened during the rainy season, then when you were in Kigali makes no difference. So you're not able to provide alibi testimony. Another difficulty that witnesses have is providing information about distances. A lot of times they have, they claim, and it's probably very true, that they've not been taught Western units of measurement. So they're not able to say how many meters they were from an event, how far a distance was, etc. Um, a lot of times they try but fail to present that testimony. So in a couple of instances, 
Um, in one of the East Timorese cases, the witness was asked how wide the road was. And a couple of times, so I don't know, I don't know those things, but he was pressed. And he said, well, maybe about 100 meters wide. And then when asked further, he said about one car could pass through it. So he obviously didn't know, but was trying to provide an estimate for the fact finder. In a Sierra Leone case, one witness was insisted that it took that it was 12 miles from this location to that location, and it took him 45 minutes to walk. And counsel kept saying it would take longer, far longer to drive that distance, given the road conditions. You couldn't possibly walk, but he maintained. So sometimes they will try but fail, but a lot of times they'll just say, I don't know, when asked. And again, why is that relevant? It's relevant to the fact finder, particularly when the witness is being asked, how far away were you from the events that you witnessed? Because that's just a key question that enables the fact finder to have a sense of how likely it was you could see well. If, you're not, if you just say, well, I wasn't very far at all, that doesn't give the fact finder very much information. All right, duration and numbers provide um, difficulty for some witnesses. So they're often unable to say how long a particular event lasted or how many attackers there were. Maps and sketches are even more important. Frequently, international witnesses, when they're given, what, what will happen is, the, in particularly defense counsel will be trying to discredit or undermine the witness's testimony and they want to isolate where the witness was. Usually, I, I mean this happened more frequently in the Rwanda tribunal than in Sierra Leone. I didn't see defense counsel even asking witnesses very frequently to look at sketches or maps or um, pictorial representations in Sierra Leone. And a couple of instances that happened that I saw. I didn't read every transcript, but the ones I saw on the witness would just say, I can't understand that. In the Rwanda tribunal, there was concern among defense counsel that the witness wasn't really there at the, at the site, or alternatively, if they were there, they were in a position at which they really weren't able to see the action very well, so their testimony shouldn't be credited very heavily. But frequently, what the witness will say upon receiving this map and ask, okay, where were you in relation to the, where were you, where was the defendant, etc.?" and the witness will say, uh, I, don't, I can't make sense of this. I am not able to understand what this, you know, what this document is. And so that'll be the end of the questioning. It, it tends to be pretty important in the Bagalashema case, which was one of the early acquittals, one of the witnesses did pinpoint where she was in relation to the action. And the trial chamber was able to say, well, if you were there, based on the lighting and the columns and this and that, you actually wouldn't be able to see very much at all, and the, the trial chamber discredited her testimony. If that witness had just said, I'm sorry, I can't understand this piece of paper, it's very possible that the trial chamber would have credited the testimony. So it can quite make a difference. Um, all right, well, no, let's not go there yet, because what I want to talk about next is when witnesses don't understand the questions that they are asked. So the examples I was just giving you is witnesses understand the questions perfectly well, but do not have responsive answers. In a lot of instances, the witnesses won't understand the question. Sometimes this is very easy to fix. It's just a matter of terminology. The counsel will use a term that the witness doesn't understand. A lot of times, it's the form of the question. And in particular, in the Sierra Leonean um, transcripts, there was a lot of difficulty <coughs> with compound questions. So and the judges would frequently have to admonish counsel to simplify the question. So let me give you one or two examples. One of them was the counsel said to the witness, when you were told, when the Camajors told you that Chief Norman was going to speak to you, were you happy to hear that? 
And that was something that the witness was not able to understand. So the, the judge actually broke it down. He broke it down into, you know Chief Norman, right? Yes. He is your chief, right? Yes. You were told that he was coming to speak to you. Is that right? Yes. Did that make you happy? And then the witness, having broken it down into four more discrete parts, the witness was able to answer the question. Um, sometimes it's not clear why but the, there is a mismatch between the question and the answer, and it's not clear exactly what's going on. Sometimes the mismatches are just dramatic and um, really divergent. A lot of times you would assume that would be a language interpretation issue. That happened, um, I saw most um, frequently in the East Timorese um, documents that I read. So for instance, in a couple of the East Timorese cases, one time a witness was asked, by what means did you travel from Osaida to Loloto? And he answered, I was wearing my pants and my shirt. In another instance, a witness was asked, how many times did the defendant hit the victim? He was actually asked this twice, and both times he answered about 11 o'clock. So there's clearly a complete divergence between the question and the answer. A lot of times, though, the divergence won't be so great, and what it will take is that counsel will have to ask two or three or four times the same question, because the answer will be sort of on the same topic, but not particularly responsive. Um, and so you don't really know what's going on there. Um, and a lot of times, the counsel, for whatever reason, choose to give up. So they don't actually, they'll ask a couple of times, they don't get a responsive answer, and then they just move on. And so you don't know whether they're thinking, mm, I'm not so sure what kind of answer I'm going to get, I better move along. Or they just get frustrated and impatient and think, ah, the question isn't worth that much worrying about anyway. Um, a final problem that the international tribunals had, we talked a bit about it at the, at the lunchtime session, is inconsistencies between the witnesses' pretrial statements and their testimony. So what typically happens is the investigators go out into the field and they line up potential witnesses and they ask them a bunch of questions about what they witnessed. And they write it all, allegedly they write it all down, what the witness said. And sometimes there are two or three or four um, witness statements that are taken, not usually that many, usually there's one or two. Um, and then you will have the witnesses show up in court and they will testify in ways that are inconsistent with what they allegedly said, what, what shows up on the piece of paper as their pretrial statement. And as you can imagine, defense counsel make much of these inconsistencies. Now, a lot of times the inconsistencies will deal with the kind of details that witnesses are not particularly good at providing in the first place. So they'll deal with dates or distances or duration or numbers or something like that. And so you have the impression that maybe the witness wasn't really very good at it to begin with. They gave one date one day, one date the next day, and you know isn't really bothered about it. Um, in other instances, though, they really do deal with very fundamental aspects of the crime, of what the person witnessed. I have a, my book contains just, I mean, the, the transcripts are just, um, have tons and tons of these examples. I just have them all in the footnotes. But one AFRC reported in his statement that he did not witness any killings in a particular town, but at trial he testified that he saw a boy <coughs> and a girl killed there. Well, that's pretty fundamental, whether you saw somebody killed or not. Kamuhanda witness GEL statement said that the attack occurred at the Bureau Communal, whereas he testified that it occurred at the parish. Another AFRC witness 
testified that two of his three houses had been burnt down, whereas the statement said that one of his two houses had been burnt down. Now, some of this stuff isn't going to be particularly noteworthy. I mean, whether it's two out of three or one out of two doesn't particularly matter, right? It's the similar crime. But it's, it's jarring for those sort of discrepancies to come up, because you would expect assuming that the, the statement taking was accurate, that it would be the same throughout. Um, and sometimes the entire account changes between the statement and the testimony. So the, a CDF witness in the special court for Sierra Leone, she said in her statement that one victim died after a tire had been placed around his neck and then the tire was set on fire. In testimony, she denied that there had been a tire placed on the victim's head and insisted that he ran away, was shot, and then thrown into the flames of a burning house. Well, it's, you know, a completely different account of um, the event that she witnessed. Um, and maybe even most troublingly, often the defendant's involvement in the crime will change from the statement to the testimony. So in the statement, the defendant might be actively participating and later in testimony know he was just watching, or vice versa. You sometimes wonder if the witnesses were put under some sort of pressure in the interim between the statement taking and the testimony. Um, and even more worryingly, sometimes the defendant will not appear at all in the witness's statement. So we talked about this at lunchtime, where you'll have this nice long detailed statement about this is what I saw, and I saw this, and I saw this, and I saw this, and I saw this, and the defendant is never mentioned. And then at trial, the same facts are brought forth, but the defendant is right in the middle of them. And so, of course, defense counsel are asking, well, why is it that you didn't mention the defendant um, and um, Typically, the answer is, and we'll talk about this some, the answer is typically the investigator screwed up and didn't write it down right or didn't ask me the right question or something like that. So anyway, these I found um, kind of worrisome. So I tried to get a sense of how frequently they came up. And so I looked at three, the three um, special court cases that had the prosecution cases had finished by that time, which were everything but the Taylor trial. So it was CDF, AFRC, and RUF. And I looked at a half a dozen ICTR cases to try to determine how often was it that a witness testified in a way that was seriously inconsistent with their statement. So kind of along the lines of the examples I gave you, where it's dealing with a key fact in the of the crime, such that it matters, or um, you know, did the defendant kill somebody or was he just standing there? Well, that's a pretty key point, right? Or when it was dealing with the kind of fact that you just would not expect to forget, like you know, were you with your two children at when you were hiding or were you with no children? Were you hiding in this location, you know, which is across town from the other location? You would think that you would remember that sort of thing. And I found that, it, uh, I have all the numbers in the book, it varied from case to case, but approximately 50% of witnesses at these international tribunals testified in a way that I would consider seriously inconsistent with their pretrial statements. And again, I mean, seriously inconsistent is is a very subjective term, but there's just no question that, say, in a domestic trial, in the domestic Western trial, that that sort of inconsistency would just shred the witness's credibility. You just simply have to be able to have those sort of details straight. All right, so let's look at what, what might be some causes of these fact-finding um, impediments. 
The first one that obviously popped to mind, uh, my mind at least for a lot of them, was lack of education. So for instance, a large, I, the special court for Sierra Leone allowed me to figure out what percentage of witnesses had any sort of education or were literate because the counsel asked that at the beginning of each of the witnesses' testimony. Not sure why they did, but they did. So I was able to get a sense of that. And it was you know, a fairly high percentage, as you would expect, were either had no um, formal education, whatever, and or were illiterate. Um, but so you can imagine that if you know witnesses have never been taught to tell time, well, they're not going to know what time it was that a, an event took place. If they are, have not been presented with maps or sketches or pictorial representations, you know, two-dimensional representations of three-dimensional objects, then they're not going to be able to make sense of it. So it makes perfect sense that for a lot of witnesses, their, their lack of formal education simply prevents them from being able to answer some of the questions that counsel asks them. Um, another problem, of course, is language interpretation. Some of the most jarring, as I said before, some of the most jarring mismatches between questions and answers. Well, you've got to figure that the translators were not getting it right because there just isn't, you know, there, there is no other possible explanation. And in a lot of these tribunals, there is still relay interpretation, so the translation has to go through two translations in, in order to get to the um, witness and then back to again. So if you have at the ICTR, if you have an English-speaking counsel asking a question, it's going to go from English to French and then French to Kenya, Rwanda, and then back again. So that adds an additional layer. Um, Phyllis can probably tell us, but my recollection of East Timor was you could even have a third one in four, yeah. Okay, now, I mean, if anybody's played the game of telephone just in English, you know how messages can get muddled up. You know, try doing that between different languages, you know, four times. So there's eight translations, right? Four times to get to the witness and four times back. The likelihood of not having some distortions, I mean, is, is minuscule. You're going to have a lot of distortions. Um, and so you have to figure that a lot of what I called kind of unresponsive responses came from language interpretation. Um, investigator errors. So as I said, every time the statement didn't say what the witness wanted to say at trial, they would say, I don't know, I, either I told him or he didn't ask that question, so I didn't answer that question. Um, and that's going to be true in a lot of cases. For one thing, I mean, sometimes it seems like when you were just reading it that, well, why would they not ask about something as important as this? But often the investigators would be going in with particular subject matter. Um, in mind. So they might be going in to look at sexual violence in this particular area and they're interviewing the witness on that and then as part of that she ends up talking about something else and they forward that bit over to the ICTR it's, and, but they never really followed up and asked further questions so it's not as unusual as it might seem for the statements not to contain some information that you would think they really ought to contain. Also, as I said, at lunchtime, I interviewed various um, investigators off the record, of course, and some of them had some you know, pretty scary horror stories about their colleagues and um, well, just laziness and incompetence that they didn't. I mean, one of them was telling me some story about how um, the witness's testimony had the witness jumping from this bridge into the water below and then swimming away. And so the guy I was talking to, it wasn't his testimony. Uh, it wasn't his witness who was being um, 
uh, interviewed, but it was his um, colleague. And so he goes out there and he notices that the amount of water is only about this high. So if somebody were to jump from the bridge, they'd break both their legs, if not be killed. It was way too shallow. Either it wasn't a credible story or there more information needed to be gathered about how much water there was at that particular time. And so he tells his colleague, and the colleague couldn't be bothered with it at all. You know, move on, I'm done with that one. Um, and I think some of the tribunals in the early days in particular actually paid their investigators on a per-interview basis, so they encouraged what might be... Sh I mean, that you can understand it because they were moving quite slowly in the early days and there was all this pressure to move along, you're spending too much money, it's going too slowly. And so this is a means of enhancing efficiency, but it's also a means of enhancing laziness and incompetence. So the investigator errors is a very plausible um, reason to think that some of these statements look different from what the testimony um, showed. Then we have cultural divergences. So if we look first at an inability to answer questions, you know, I started off by saying, well, maybe the, some of the witnesses weren't taught various things that would be necessary to know before you could answer questions. Well, some of it might be less about education and more about culture. I mean, anthropologists tell us, for instance, that Sierra Leoneans and Westerners do not view space in the same way, that Sierra Leoneans do not see space as you know, arithmetically measured or geometrically analyzed, but they'll talk about it more in terms, you know, a, a field, instead of being measured by the acre, might be measured by how many days labor it is to reap the, um, the crops, which is just a very different way than we would see it, right? Um, so, and some of the times you had the sense in reading the transcripts that the witnesses, maybe they couldn't answer the question, but they certainly didn't consider the questions very important, and which again, I think would probably be more of a cultural difference. So in one of the ICTR cases, for instance, the witness testified, she was a rape victim, and she testified that the defendant was on top of her for four hours. And the judge expressed a little bit of skepticism. I mean, are you sure it was four hours? That seems like a long time. And she said, well, maybe it was one year because the suffering was so great. So she clearly didn't, wasn't attempting to estimate time in any precise way. Another a Sierra Leonean witness testified, this was, it was actually an important point that this rebel came back after one week. And then a little while later in the testimony, he says something that indicates it was three weeks during when the rebel came back. And so again, counsel mentions it. You just said one week, now it's three weeks, which is it? And he says, you know, we're primitive people. That which is up to a month, we call it a week, whatever. So it's clear it just wasn't, it's not just an inability, it's a um, not placing a lot of importance on the kinds of details that Westerners, and particularly in trial, in a trial setting, would think, hey, that's an important detail. Well, it's not that important to some of the witnesses. Um, the cultural divergences can also explain some of the difficulty in answering questions. So when I say that sometimes it would take three and four times for an answer to come back that seemed really responsive, that seemed directly to answer the question, it could be a translation error. It could also be that the witness, in a lot of these cultures, um, certainly in Rwanda, there was expert testimony to indicate that Rwandans don't like to answer, you know, to speak very directly. So they might, you know, kind of dance around a topic, particularly when the topic is kind of sensitive and controversial. And so, and that's very useful information for the judges to know, of course, because at least in a lot of Western courtrooms, if your witnesses is answering what we would call evasively, they're not really answering the question, you might think that the person either at the least doesn't have a lot of confidence 
in what he or she is saying, and perhaps is um, not honest. I mean, you know, we have this sense of if you're not answering directly and forthrightly that there might be an honesty issue. So it's clearly important for the judges to know that that's not always the case. Uh, but it's not really clear what the judges um, are going to do with that information because it's not necessarily clear that it is a cultural phenomenon. Um, it's also the case that um, taboos impeded testimony at a lot of the tribunals. Uh, I'm, I'm sure it happened a lot of times that I didn't know. In some of the instances I did know, uh, one that st stood out to me in East Timor, the witness was being testified on who, about who was on a bus after an ambush. And he named a bunch of people, this one, this one, this one, this one. And the counsel asked him, well, what about this guy, Horacio, I think his name was. What about Horacio? And this was a guy who was later killed somewhere else. And the witness got all of a sudden very evasive, didn't seem to want to answer the question, did not say very clearly whether Horacio had been on the bus or not, until defense counsel raised their hand and said, look, there's a taboo against speaking the name of dead people. Well, I don't know if that's true or not, but that's what the defense counsel said. And that's why he is not answering that question. He doesn't want to talk about this guy. Okay, now that one came out. Um, it was it was inexplicable otherwise, right? And the, the the judges were clearly not getting a clear, concise answer to that question. Um, but you have to assume that taboos might be impeding some testimony that we don't know about, where there is no, particularly at the ICTR, you don't have any Rwandans participating in the process, so there might not be anybody there to identify them. It also, taboos and cultural factors can make it difficult to assess the witness's credibility because they will sometimes invoke culture in a way that we don't really know what to make of it. So in one of the um, ICTR cases, in Nadinda Bahizi, for instance, two witnesses come to the ICTR and they testify that Nadinda Bahizi had done this and this and this, right? Well, these witnesses had also participated in genocide trials in the national courts in Rwanda, and they had not mentioned Nadinda Bahizi in their testimony there. So of course, defense counsel says, you know, here's, here's this very important person. Why would you have failed to mention him when you were testifying in the local trials and only mention him here? And the witness says, quote, you know, when somebody fled and you don't know where he is, you cannot talk about him when you cannot see him. You can only talk about people you see. And why will I testify against the accused when he is not there? Now, I mean, maybe he's basically invoking culture, right? This is some um, cultural norm that would not be um, the case in Western courtroom. But again, it makes it harder for the judges to <coughs> assess the witness's credibility. In another ICTR case, in the Etigeta, um, a witness used culture to explain what seemed like an inconsistency. So in the witness's statement, he, tested, he, he stated that a certain man had been captured and taken to Gitwa Hill and brought to the defendant, right? Then at testimony, when he was on trial, he said that he saw this particular person be decapitated from his hiding place in the forest. So again, this, this inconsistency is brought to the witness. Wait a minute, you said in your statement that you saw him taken to Niatageta, you know, how could you have seen him be decapitated? And the witness said, well, when I said I saw him being taken to Niatageta, I meant his head was being taken. The head is the essence of the person, so that's what I meant. And again, it's appealing to culture. It would not be a, uh, I mean, if an American or a British witness were to use that explanation to explain the inconsistency, I think most of us would find it 
maybe a little bit puzzling and probably not true, but in a context where the judges don't know the culture and where they are very different from the judges' culture, it's, it's certainly plausible. Okay, so um, a final cause of the testimonial um, difficulties that I identified would be lying, right? I mean, everything I just talked about was what I would call an innocent explanation for the problems, or an explanation that it certainly makes it harder for the fact finder, and can make it harder for the defendant in some situations, but it doesn't call the witnesses um, credibility or truthfulness into account. But virtually all of the um, fact-finding impediments that I identified could also be explained by purposeful efforts to conceal, by lying. So think about dating. It is, if you are trying to implicate a defendant um, inaccurately, you would be far better off not dating events because one, you're not going to be held to be inconsistent. You're not going to contradict other witnesses who may have been there. And two, you're not going to allow the defendant to present an alibi testimony. The same thing um, is true for distances. Um, and even the, even the um, what I just described as evasions, which could be when a witness doesn't answer responsively. Well, it could be because they don't know the answer. It could be because there is some cultural predisposition to not speaking directly about sensitive items. Uh, it could be a translation error. Right, and you're not really getting the right question asked. Or it could be that the witness is trying to buy some time um, or trying to answer evasively so as not to present a clear, you know, coherent testimony. Um, so, and, and it is the case, I mean, defense counsel mentioned this all the time, and I did find it to be true, that witnesses seem to have much more difficulty answering questions on cross-examination than on direct examination. Now, maybe some of that is because they've been prepped a little bit on direct, and so they know what the questions are, and so even if they had certain difficulties before being asked, they've practiced so that that might explain it. But it also could be they're being asked questions that they don't particularly want to answer, and so you do see much more evasive. I, I found much more evasiveness on cross than, um, and I say evasiveness, that's a pejorative term. I don't mean it that way. Non-responsiveness, I think, would be the more neutral term because I don't know. It could be evasiveness. It could be um, something less um, problematic. But so what I try to do is figure out, okay, is, is lying a problem at the international tribunals? I think that might be the best that I could hope to determine. Um, and you know, and, and so I looked at whoops, oh, um, you know, are there incentives to lie? Yeah, there's definitely incentives to lie. Some of it is just the ethnic tensions that led to the violence to begin with can give rise to strategic dishonest behavior. You know, five years later at trial, right? But also, the there are some financial incentives. You certainly saw this. The tribunals provide what have to be considered very modest stipends to witnesses to come and testify. But as defense counsel <coughs> frequently point out, these, although they are modest by our standards, they often, they also are uh, very frequently far more, worth far more than what the witness would have made if he stayed home. So it might be, you know, five times the, the um, money. And there often is um, some medical care that could be at issue to the tribunals. Understandably, you understand, I mean, here these witnesses are doing something that is very difficult for them. And it could be very dangerous for them, because sometimes witnesses are subject to retaliation. Um, and so that would be 
perfectly appropriate to provide them with some counseling, some medical care, modest stipends. There's no problem with the appropriateness of it, but it can give rise to incentives for, um, you know, being a witness may not be an entirely bad thing, and it can give rise to some incentives to want to be a witness. And if you want to be a prosecution witness, well, by God, you had better have some um, inculpatory evidence against the defendant, otherwise you're not going to be a very useful one. So what I tried to do is look at what the prevalence of lying might be. I mean, some of the witnesses just admit that they have lied. They will recant their testimony later, and so you know that they lied at one point or another. Sometimes the lying is just obvious with any sort of common sense interpretation. So I can give you a number of examples. The one that stands out to me was the Sierra Leonean witness who, when asked, do you know this other witness, testified no, and later it turned out that the other witness was his son. So you think, okay, probably you were lying about that. Um, and then, but, but you know, those don't come up that frequently. I mean, there are um, massive allegations of lying, particularly at the Rwanda Tribunal, um, but that's not particularly determinative of anything. Uh, but what I did try to do is look at how frequently were did cases have contradictory evidence between witnesses and defendants? No, witnesses and defendants. Between two sets of witnesses where both could not be true at the same time. And I found that in the vast majority, it was over 90% of ICTR cases that I looked at, that phenomenon happened at least once. Sometimes it was only once. But that it, somebody in that, you know, that instance was either lying or mistaken, could have been mistaken. Um, but it is, I, I think it's hard to believe that there would be that many mistakes. I also found that defendants are much more likely to use alibi defenses at the international tribunals than they are in Western tribunals. I think largely because it's easier to do. There isn't the documentary evidence that could either disprove your alibi or um, yeah, just show you to be lying. So. Um, what I found at that point is, okay, we got a lot of problems, and then the one question is, well, are there ways of ameliorating the problems? Well, one way would be if we had some documentary evidence. You know, the Nuremberg Tribunal had, they had translation problems too. There's a couple of books written on the difficulties um, that, and also in the Tokyo Tribunals. Uh, but particularly Nuremberg, they had tra translation issues that didn't end up mattering because they just had reams and reams and reams of documentary evidence. Well, the modern day international tribunals don't have any documentary evidence, so that isn't saving us. It would also, um, some of these problems might be ameliorated if defense counsel could go in and conduct really solid investigations, but there's a host of problems associated with that. Sometimes defense counsel can't even get in the country. In the early days of the ICTR, defense counsel couldn't even get in. Now they can. Um, but there, so there's also logistical problems, making it from one place to the next. In Timor, the, there wasn't enough money and defense counsel weren't able to conduct adequate investigations. And even when you can surmount all of these obstacles, what do defense witnesses end up with? They end up with witness testimony of the same sort that the prosecution witnesses come up with. So you end up with just conflicting testimony. And the defense witnesses' testimony features the same kind of difficulties as the prosecution witnesses' testimony. Um, so what you have is, I mean, what struck me about this was how much is up in the air at these international trials. I mean, in an, in an American trial, you know, you might have one or two factual issues in a whole case. And that would be it. I mean, everything else 
the defendant can't plausibly contest. I mean, there's, look, you know, in this country, there's TV cameras everywhere. There's, you know, all sorts of documentary evidence. There's just a whole heck of a lot that you cannot plausibly contest. It's not true at the international tribunal, so everything is up for grabs. And you'll have, I mean, one of the AFRC um, defendants at first was contesting he was the right guy. He said, this is a different person. Um, and you will frequently have witnesses, and not, not infrequently, um, do you have witnesses with the same names testifying? There'll be you know, mismatches there. Or there'll be allegations made that just never get sorted out. So um, I remember in a couple of cases, a witness would come and testify, so-and-so killed my father. Well, what is the defense counsel come back and say? You would expect the, the um, argument would be, the claim would be, no, so-and-so did not kill your father. It was somebody else, or you can't prove it. Well, the claim back was, your father isn't dead. He ran off and is now hiding in Guinea or someplace else. And, and there was no way of proving it one way or the other. There isn't any death certificate, so the witness could say, you know, yes, my father is dead and here's how he died. And nobody knows. And so these things would be left up in the air. Um, similarly, in, you know, who you are related to, sometimes defense counsel would try to prove bias and would say, you know, isn't this one of Chief, isn't he related to one of Chief Norman's wives? And there would be some dispute about that. They'd say, no, he's not a wife, he's a, she's a cousin, or blah, blah, blah. And, and it would just be left up in the air and there was no proof to it. Um, so what does it all mean? Um, at some level, what it means is that international tribunals have an awful lot of difficulty figuring out who did what to whom at any kind of specific, in any kind of specific way with any measure or what I would call certainty. I certainly don't feel certain about a lot of the factual findings that I saw. So I decided to look at, okay, what do the trial chambers do? They're the ones on the front lines. They're seeing all these contradictions and difficulty answering questions. So how do they respond to these difficulties? Um, and most of, I would say pretty cavalierly. A lot of times they don't mention the difficulties at all, so you won't see them in the judgments, particularly when it comes to difficulty answering questions, um, providing information, or not answering directly. You rarely see anything of that sort. Um, sometimes they'll mention that you know a bunch of witnesses had trouble reading maps or estimating distances, but here's one quote. But they'll observe that they are, quote, farmers and people who did not have a high standard of education, and consequently, they're not drawing any adverse inferences from that. And that might be appropriate, but they do tend to call the doubts in favor of the witness's testimony. As for inconsistencies, they clearly privilege the in-court testimony over the written statements. So unless the inconsistencies are particularly grave and severe, they frequently will just ignore the statements. They'll just say, well, what we have here, what the witness just testified under oath is what we're going to pay attention to. Um, and finally, sometimes even when they are convinced, this happened in the special court for Sierra Leone, even when they are convinced that the witness is either lying or gravely mistaken about one aspect of his or her testimony, they will reject that aspect of the testimony, but then credit other aspects of the witness's testimony. So in the CDF case, a very important witness, Albert Nallo, testified about all sorts of things that the defendants did. He also testified about having participated in certain crimes at the defendant's um, behest. One of them, a, a couple were very highly contested. One of them, which was most noteworthily contested, was a guy, he said, that he had beaten him severely and cut off his ear. 
So defense counsel was able actually to go to the town, find the guy, and trot him before the special court, and there he had two intact ears. You know, he said, nobody ever beat me. It's just complete rubbish. So you know at that point that, at least about this aspect of the testimony, that that is untrue, but still the trial chamber relied on his testimony for a whole lot of other um, factual findings. Um, another in the um, AFRC case, a witness testified that defendant Canu led a group of rebels into Wellington. She described him repeatedly as, quote, huge, fat, and tall. The chamber noticed that the witness's description, you know, that he was, in fact, a thin man of medium height. So, you know, these are completely wrong. So they did not credit her testimony to that particular aspect, but they credited other aspects of her testimony. Now, maybe that's appropriate, but certainly you could be lying about one thing and truthful about another, or you could be mistaken about one thing and accurate about another. But sometimes you get the impression that the trial chamber just has that as a presumption rather than um, considering it very seriously. Okay, so you know, how did the trial chambers react to the fact-finding impediments? Well, as I say, kind of cavalierly. Um, and so I wanted to consider, well, why do they react that way? Because these are not, you know, these are not, I, I think, in the main. I know some people would disagree in the main. I don't think these are incompetent people. I don't think they are ill-willed people. I think they are working under difficult conditions to do the best they can. And so why would they ignore what seems like pretty problematic testimony in order to convict somebody? Um, I had, I, I came up with a couple of um, speculations, one about, well, it'd be very hard politically to acquit a bunch of people early on, and I'm guessing that had something to do with it. As I said earlier today, I tried to have a sense of you know, the judge's own background, and maybe that would play a role, but I didn't actually get anywhere with that line of inquiry. And so my best guess is that the, what the trial chambers do is that they infer a great deal from the defendant's position in the organization, from their official position. So we saw, I mean, this was, look, this was done at Nuremberg in a different way. You had Article 9, which basically said, you know, we, the tribunal can find certain organizations to be criminal, and once it does so, then you can be convicted of being a member of a criminal organization. Well, the tribunal, that was the charter, right? The tribunal ended up gutting that provision, finding it to violate due process, and required the prosecution not only to prove that the individual was a member of the organization, but in addition to prove that the individual had voluntarily joined the organization and had known of its criminal purposes. Now, I say it gutted it. Why did it gut it? The, the whole point of these provisions was to be able to provide summary efficient justice to a whole lot of Nazis, and once the prosecution has to prove these various other elements, then the summary efficient aspect is over with. Um, and there hasn't been even a w overt whiff of the kind of organizational liability that we saw at Nuremberg in the modern day international tribunals. That is considered just, you know, um, bad as a due process matter, as a human rights matter. But I do wonder if the tribunals are, or the trial chambers aren't smuggling some of these notions in. Because, um, I mean, what do we have? We have, and now they, they don't overtly, because what do we have? We have indictments that allege very specific incidents. This one was on this hill on this day distributing machetes. On that day, he was you know, calling for the extermination of the Tutsi. You have very specific incidents that the prosecution has to prove. Um, but they can't prove them with very good 
evidence, as I've been highlighting. I mean, certainly not beyond a reasonable doubt if that's going to mean anything. So what I have to assume they're doing is that they are inferring from the defendant's official position their involvement in these crimes. Now, some of that is very non-controversial. I mean, think about, well, first off, inferences have been drawn, you know, forever, right? I mean, in the old days, you had, you know, the medieval times, there was the wisdom that women were more likely to be poisoners and children were more like, you know, there'd be all sorts of inferences which sound weird to our ears. But we all know that it's human nature we do this, right? And it's why... Um, at least in the very fussy American evidentiary code, a whole lot of evidence is excluded, right? We don't want you to know that the defendant had four prior drug convictions because probably you're going to draw an inference that he was dealing drugs today, right? So we exclude that just because we know how powerful it is, right? In the international context, inferences could be even more powerful because of the nature of the crimes and how they're committed. These are large-scale, widespread crimes that are done with organization and planning. They don't just happen, right? And so once it's been determined that a particular group is responsible for attacks on a town or a particular area, then the defendant's position in that group has to be pretty relevant to the likelihood that he or she participated in some fashion. Maybe not that he was distributing weapons on this day, but participated in some fashion. Um, and so, I mean, you know, as I say, some of it is non-controversial. If the, if the allegation against the defendant is that he ordered killings in a particular location, and you have clear and convincing evidence that the killings took place in a very systematic, organized way by a particular group, and the defendant is, a, is the leader of that group, then it makes sense to draw the inference that the defendant ordered those killings. Even if your evidence about the specific ordering, maybe you have some witness testimony that isn't very convincing, even if it's not very convincing, that makes sense. What I think may also happen um, that is more controversial is where the trial chambers infer on the basis of the defendant's official position just some involvement, less, less specific, just you must have been involved. I mean, if you consider, if you consider like Adolf Eichmann, you know, um, what was his official title? Head of the Gestapo's Office of Jewish Affairs, something like that. Well, knowing the Gestapo, knowing what happened to the Jews, he's the head of the Gestapo's Office of Jewish Affairs, it's hard not to think, knowing nothing else, that this guy probably had a lot to do, with, you know, was involved in some serious way with the crimes. And I think the, the command structures and the name recognition of some of the Sierra Leonean and Rwandan defendants is not so well known in Western cultures, but you could say, you know, the same thing with Fode Senko as head of the RUF. It would be hard for most of us to say, well, this guy probably, we, the, we would be willing to draw inferences from his official position in the RUF, given what we know about RUF crimes, that he probably had a lot to do with it. And I'm guessing that that's what the trial chambers, to some extent, do. Now, um, part of the reason, I think, that is because they are so careful here about the, the witness testimony. Part of the reason, too, is I had a look at the acquittals. At the time, the ICTR acquittals um, that took place, just to have a sense of, OK, well, what's the difference here? And in a few of the acquittals, in three of the acquittals, there were six at the time that I was looking. In three of them, they featured high-level 
government ministers who you would expect you know, strong inferences to be drawn. But the witness testimony in these cases was abysmally bad, almost certainly perjured, so that nobody could, you know, it would be very hard to turn a blind eye on those. In the other three, though, you had lower level defendants. Um, I'm thinking two of them, I don't pronounce these well, two of them were um, Bergmeister, is that how you pronounce it? Is that that? Yeah, all right. Um, and in those cases, the evidence that was presented was very similar to the evidence that you would see in a conviction. What was the difference? So what was the difference? Well, the difference was the trial chamber carefully, studiously scrutinized the inconsistencies, the vagueness, the inability to provide details, and rejected the witness's testimony on those bases. And you think, well, why, why would that be, right? Why did they do it in these cases and in the other cases not? Well, in each of the cases, there was some credible, the, the, the defendants did not present credible evidence specifically refuting the witness's testimony. Say the testimony was, I was at this location, you know, handing out weapons, right? The defendants didn't present very much evidence to refute those allegations, but what they did present was credible evidence that they were not involved in the genocide at all. So in one case, the defendant had contemporaneously written letters where he was very obviously trying to stem the violence, trying to protect the Tutsi. Okay, so that, I think, was quite persuasive to the trial chambers. In the second case you had, and this is going to sound like the trial chamber is racist, but there you go, um, they had two Western witnesses. One of them um, was a Brit and one was a Spaniard. I think it was a Spanish priest and a British physiotherapist. And they testified, well, no, actually, he was like one of the good guys. He was really trying to stem the violence here. And in both of those cases, you had the trial chamber actually carefully scrutinizing the witness testimony that in other cases, they would have let pass very easily. Um, in a third case, in Bagambiki, you had a guy who clearly was involved in some of the violence. He clearly had, his hands were dirty. He clearly had been involved and um, probably instrumental in having a few Tutsi killed, but the, five minutes, okay. Um, the evidence was very, um, uh, substantially showed that he was trying to prevent as much violence as he could. And so again, the, the lesson that I drew from that is when the trial chambers think, you know, it, it's more of a gestalt finding. They're not doing what they say they're doing. They're writing judgments that say, we find beyond a reasonable doubt that this person was in this place doing this thing. They can't find that beyond a reasonable doubt. It's impossible, at least on the testimony that they've been given. So what they're doing in effect is saying, we think beyond a reasonable doubt that this person is substantially involved in the violence. And if we don't, then how do we go about rejecting the testimony? Well, well, we'll look at all the things that we don't otherwise look at. Okay, in my last five minutes, in fact, um, you know what I might do? We might just stop here. And I was going to talk about um, you know, the normative implications. How might we improve things? How bad a deal is this? But why don't I, if it's okay with you, since there's only a couple of minutes left, why don't I just stop? And if you guys want to raise it, those sorts of questions, we can talk about it, and if not, not. Okay, okay. good. Well, thank yeah. you very much.